You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. Do you ever talk to yourself? I do it all the time. We do it, I should say, because that's how it sounds in my head. When I'm following a map, for instance, we are going to turn right on Vicolo del Leopardo, go past the bar with the mosaic tiles, and then we know where we are. It's an old habit. We are going to look the teacher in the eye and tell her it's not fair. My competent self is doing the talking. My bewildered self is being addressed. We're going to go over to the phone now and call for help with one hand and hold the baby with the other. For the first time I can remember, I cannot locate my competent self, one more missing person. In the last few months, I have lost my son, my spouse, and my house. Every morning, I wake up and for a few seconds, I'm disoriented, confused as to why I feel grief seeping into my body. And then I remember what has become of my life. I am thunderstruck by feeling at odd times, and then I find myself gripping the kitchen counter, a subway pole, a friend's body, so I won't fall over. I don't mean that figuratively. My sorrow is so intense, it often feels like it will flatten me. Ariel Levy joined The New Yorker as a staff writer in 2008 and received the National Magazine Award for Essays and Criticism in 2014 for her piece, Thanksgiving in Mongolia. She's the author of the book Female Chauvinist Pigs, Women, and the Rise of Ranch Culture and was a contributing editor at The New Yorker for 12 years. Her new memoir is The Rules Do Not Apply. Thank you for joining me, Ariel. Thanks for having me. We'll get to rules and their application, both of which may change without notice. Yep. I think this is a beautifully written book. Thank you. And... As a memoir, we expect memoirs to encounter a memoir. Essentially, I was born <laughs> through this is the point in my life where I've finished writing the memoir, unless mm-hmm. we've got something supernatural happening. Talk about um, taking, deciding to write about your life when you had written about so many other lives as a reporter. Well, you know, I just felt... Like I had a story in front of me that was a good story and that if it was anybody else's story, I would want to tell it because I it had had so much application to all the issues that I've been interested in and writing about for 20 years, um, having to do with, you know, what is a woman, um, the essential conflict for, for women but for people in general between the desire for adventure and excitement on the one hand and safety and domesticity on the other. Many of the issues I've been interested in came into play in the story I wanted to tell, so I just thought, I'm going to tell it. I'm calling you out right now. You're a story addict. (laughs) You're a story addict, too. (laughs) So takes one to know one. That may be the case. Uh, However, I think that plays a part in the way you've lived your life. When did you become a story addict? When, When did you... I don't remember ever not being one, you know? I mean, I, I, that was always my thing. Like, when I was a little kid, I, that was the happiest I remember being. It's like when my parents were reading me 
Pippi Longstockings or The Hobbit or, you know, stories about adventure. And very early on, I got it in my head that I was going to be a writer because I thought that was the profession that went with the kind of woman I wanted to become, which is to say someone who is free to do whatever she chooses. How did you uh, form this objective? I mean, I so talk, about, talk about your parents. What, why, being, what were they like? I mean, in, in terms of bringing you up, were they, I guess... Uh, post hippies or yeah very much so mm-hmm. not so post um my but also my dad's a writer my dad writes um for nonprofits he's written for like name a lefty cause my dad's probably written some of their copy mm-hmm. um so i grew up watching someone like lying on the floor in front of the tv but not really watching the tv like writing on these yellow pads and crossing them out talking to himself and, and so it just seemed like a natural thing to do to me to write all the time Um, and they, you know, my mom really encouraged me. I mean, since I was little, she was like, oh, of course you can be a writer. Of course you'll do that. You came of age in a time when there was a lot of, you know, I guess, uh, Counterculture rebellion. There always is a lot, of right? Right. Actually, rebellion. yeah. I guess right. right. it never goes away. Uh-uh. Uh, but for you, uh, as a woman, this was a particularly great time to come of age, wasn't it? Well, I mean, I think I was very much the beneficiary of the women's movement. I was mm-hmm. born in 1974, and I was raised to believe that I could and should be the protagonist in my own life. I was raised to believe that the rules that my mother had to follow and that certainly her mother had to follow did not apply to me. And having uh, been raised to that, what rules did you discover even as a young girl um, you know, going out on your first dates, forming your first forming your first uh, job, mm-hmm. uh, striking striking for the New Yorker. Um, how how did you experience rules that did apply to you? Well, I mean, before any of that, just when I was a kid, I mean, I was constantly told that I was too much, that I was too loud, too assertive, mm. um, even in too uh, outspoken. At home too? Or? No. Okay. No. Just uh-uh. on, in no, my, school. Yeah, in school and just everywhere outside of my little house, people were like, sheesh, pipe down. <laughs> I, I, I take it those efforts were pretty much entirely wasted. <laughs> they were. I mean, they made me feel bad, but they didn't, I didn't shut up. Do you, do you think they, in fact, helped you become the person? Do you think that having something to push against helped you uh, I don't develop know. a strength of pushing? I have nothing to compare it to. I don't know. Maybe, probably. Yeah, maybe. Uh, the specifics in this book, the language in this book is amazing. Thank I you. I mean, it just, there are, there are places where it just really grabs you with claws. Thank you. Uh, did this uh, roll off the tip of your pen? Ha! No. No, I worked hard. <laughs> no. I mean, actually, the essay, Thanksgiving in Mongolia, that this book mm-hmm. grew out of, that did just kind of come out of my fingers without I, any thought. You explain that in the narrative. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Like, it just happened. Mm-hmm. The book, no, it was like a regular project that took work and time and revision and the efforts of editors and the whole thing. Uh, But it was a pleasure. I'll tell you that. Like 
when I wrote my first book, I hated doing it. I mean, I felt like I was pushing a rock up a muddy slope. This was, I enjoyed writing this book. Why? What was the difference between the two? Well, because my first book was a polemic. And Mm -hmm. as it turns out, I'm not a polemicist. I'm not here to make cases. I'm here to tell stories. Well, I would say that you're a fine polemicist. It's just that your means of uh, convincing something people of that something is true is by telling them a story. It's actually much, it's the difference between making a good case in course and just hitting them with a fist in the face. You prefer the fist in the face method. I'm taking it. Well, I I didn't like writing a polemic. It felt inauthentic to me. Mm-hmm. Like making, making a case explicitly mm-hmm. felt like an inauthentic way to write to me. It's just not my natural mode. You were a, a quite a bit ahead of your time in I think in terms of your approach to to your sexuality and your experience of your sexuality um I mean I guess like there have been bisexual people forever well you know yeah you have to yeah. you have to I guess my my take is is that like you say the, the proportions of gay and bisexual peop, humans in culture in the population probably has not changed right. that much right. since right. antiquity. Ever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right, right, right. So, uh, but the, the um, agency given to them yeah. is has varied uh, greatly. And you absolutely. came, you were just absolutely, again, in one sense, very, you, luck was super on your side. Yeah. <laughs> because you yeah. were, uh, your sexuality, you could uh, explore it. Um, expand it. And, and it was not a thing. You're was, absolutely right that I got lucky in terms of the parents I had, the city, New York that I lived in, and the and the, the work I was doing as a writer. Nobody cared. It, it didn't matter. It wasn't an issue being, you know, being who I was with, whether I was with man or woman. It didn't matter at all. I, I think um, for me, I, the casualness uh, and, you know, the ease of that you have with yourself makes this a really easy book to read, even when what you're talking about might seem really hard or mm. foreign. I mean, my experience does not include a lot of your kinds of relationships and, and some, the grief and, and such. So, um, But you've probably had grief and loss of your own. That's the thing. We've all, you know, loss is the price we pay to keep being here, being mm-hmm. alive on Earth. So, what you know, not everyone has lost a baby, but everyone's lost something. That's true. This book is very economical. I mean, <laughs> it's, it, it, I, I was it's a very nice way of saying it's short. It's short. It's good. I like a short book. Believe me, I have to read a lot of books. So a short yeah, book yeah, is, right, is right, welcome. Right, right. Um, that said, you do a great job of, in a small space, creating these fantastic characters. All the people you knew, they totally come to life. Oh, thanks. So talk about uh, the, I guess, the triangle, in a sense, that's at the heart of this book. The triangle? The, do you mean my... my Your affair? Oh, that triangle. There's a lot of triangles okay. in the book, well, right? The well, first triangle is... Let's talk about them. So what's so, the first Okay, one? so the first triangle is I'm an only child. So my mom, my dad, and I... Okay. Or a triangle. But then also my mother had a had a lover who came in and out of the house for 20 years. So then there That's was right. a triangle between my mom, my dad, and this guy. Then there was the triangle when I was married to my spouse and I had an affair. So that was another triangle. And then a third triangle was when my spouse and I decided to have a child 
the father of the baby was going to be involved. So that was another triangle, me, my spouse, and the baby's father. Wow. That, yeah, it's triangle central, yeah. right? <laughs> I, I don't mean to be... I'm done, though. No more triangles. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm out of the triangle game. That's what you're saying now. No, no, no. Tri- I, I'm, believe me, I'm done. <laughs> I am done with that. I, I, well, I would suggest that that maybe... The, is that perhaps burned into your DNA? No, I I learn the hard way. You know what I mean. I learn my lessons. No, nobody learns lessons. <laughs> Is that true? I, do you think that I, I I'm in my own uh, lengthening life? That seems to be the case. Well, right. I mean, look. Who knows? You're you you maybe you know things I don't. I mean, I tell you what though, I would if there's one thing I regret, it's having an affair. And if there's one thing I would never do again, it's having an affair because. It's not just that it's a horrible thing to do to the person you love. It's a horrible thing to do to yourself. Yes, and you make that quite clear. Yeah, it's so, not something I would do again. Well, ha- explain how that happened. Take us to that. Well, I think a couple things. I think at that point it really did feel burned into my DNA, like you said. I mean, I was raised around that, so it didn't seem that unusual to me. It's rebellion. You had to, you were, you got married, then you rebelled against the contract you engaged in. Yeah, I did. But you I thought also, that role did not apply to you. Well, and I also felt, sadly, that I was retaliating because I was really angry about my spouse's addiction, my spouse's alcoholism. I felt that, you know, she was sort of having this affair with alcohol. It mm-hmm. felt like to me, it felt like she, there was, it felt like there was a third thing in the marriage to me because of her addiction. And I didn't know anything about addiction at that point. I'd never been to an Al-Anon meeting. I didn't grow up with addicts. I didn't know anything about it. And I was angry and I blamed her. And it did not, I did not understand that she wasn't choosing to be an addict, that she didn't want to be an addict any more than I wanted her to be one. Well, I think that, as as you explore that relationship in prose for us, um, what we see is that the revenge and the addiction, they're opposite sides of almost the same the same inclination, which is if you built up something nice, maybe you should blow it up. There's a lot of pleasure in blowing stuff up that you built nice. Hmm. I, you know, I never thought about that. When I was a kid, I used to build elaborate model rockets. And then after a month or so, I'd go find some firecrackers and put them on a stump and blow them up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking that there's a bit of that happening in your life. Well, I don't think for my spouse, I don't think there was any choice involved. Like, I don't mm-hmm. think that she wanted to blow anything up. I think addiction is a kind of enslavement and no one chooses it. And anyone who's loved an addict, whether it's your spouse or your parent or your child, probably can relate to the feeling of powerlessness and rage that I had. Um, So I don't, I, it, it, I'm sure you're right at some level, but it didn't, I didn't think I was blowing anything up. I thought I was getting away with something, and I thought I had a right to. I thought I was entitled to because I was, I I was angry, and I was I was um, retaliating. Is how is how I think I justified it. Did you think that you were 
hurting your spouse? Were you intending to hurt your no. spouse? Or did you think you were just retaliating against her, but she would never find out and nothing would ever come to it and everything would be golden one day in yeah, some I thought, unfortunate future? I <laughs> Some imaginary future. I thought that she would never have to know about it, that it would be a victimless crime, and that if and any time I felt guilty, I thought, well, she's doing a bad thing to the marriage with her drinking, so I'm entitled to do this. I mean, I, as I say it, I know it sounds deranged, but that is, I think that was what was going on in my head at the time. Well, I don't think it's deranged. I think that you have so much, you're, I think people have different amounts of momentum in their life. Hmm. <laughs> and some people move slowly through their lives. And mm-hmm. they, that's just who they are. You are not that person. I'm you becoming person. that person because <laughs> I wore myself out. <laughs> uh, you're done t- driving through stop signs? Uh, I Well, I never drove through stop signs. My God, man. Well. I'm, I'm a careful, careful driver. <laughs> My God. Well, I think that in a sense you I drove do not through- text and drive. That is not... Well, you you have been texting and driving and, in life, in life, yeah, yes, yeah. and driving through many stop signs. Yeah, That's in yeah. a sense the point of your book. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I and I and I think a lot of that. I you know it's funny. I I really think that I had this compulsion to experience as much as I could. That was what I thought should happen. I I felt like I almost owed it to myself. Mission accomplished. Yeah, right. <laughs> ha, ha, ha. Right. Maybe that's why now I'm like, I, I, I don't feel that way anymore because the mission has been accomplished um, and now I'm pooped. Um, <laughs> you know, but yeah, I did. I felt like I wanted to experience everything I could. I wanted to be Pippi Longstockings. And I also thought that I had control in a certain way. I thought that if I was dogged and strategic enough, I could be the protagonist in my own life and I could control the story. And it has been made clear to me that that is not the case, that I'm not in control of the story. And that finding that out, in addition to being extremely painful, has felt extremely liberating. You, in this book, you fight with control issues your entire life. You want your hands on the controls and you don't want anybody else's near the controls. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that As a kid, you know, I wonder how many only children feel this way. I felt very much like a little adult, Mm -hmm. you know, because I spent all my time with these two adults. I didn't, you know, there's no other kids around. So I felt like I was a little adult and I felt like it was like a a perverse injustice that I didn't have more power. <laughs> yeah, no, I can see that. I think that that I can see that right now. You probably still feel that way. In no, some because ways. now no? I have as much power as I want. Like now, I mean, that's the thing. I felt like I was 40 when I was three. <laughs> well, now I am in my 40s. So everything feels like right. You've caught up with yourself. I've caught up with myself. And, and I've learned that I'm not in control. I've learned that I have much less control than than I ever thought, so I can relax. You know, uh, that's an interesting issue in this book. It comes up late in the book, but I think this is something that I don't find discussed enough, is the issue of luck and control. So many people, especially one might say the very successful, will tell you that their success is the result of their hard work, their determination, 
their grit, their education, the people that helped them. Luck doesn't seem to play up much of a part in that, but I, in most people's stories. But I think it it actually, uh, it's more than fifty percent of anybody's life, and we typically like to attribute it to about three <laughs> percent. Well, I also think that the worldview you're describing, you know, with these people. It's very much like a post-spiritual, post-religious worldview. Mm-hmm. And what preceded that, of course, and still is in play in much of the world, is is this view that there's something greater than us. And that's, of course, the basis for every religion, I mean, in one way or another, that there's something bigger than you. And Whales and elephants. <laughs> well, actually, That's true. that is my belief system, <laughs> that that is what I believe in, that there is something bigger than us. And yes, whales and elephants are bigger, but nature is bigger. Mm-hmm. Nature is bigger. That to me, you know, nature was here before. It'll be here after we've destroyed our species. And nature, you know, I say in the book that I wanted to be the kind of woman who is free to do whatever she chooses. And it's nature who's free to do whatever she chooses. That's what I learned. And when I first lost my baby, it felt like a crime against nature. It felt like a crime against nature to me. And it took a long time to feel like, actually, that's nature herself. That is nature. The ultimate mother, as you put it. And she, I think she's the ultimate mother and, and and no one gets out alive. She's she's gonna stay. She's gonna keep on going. We're not. My favorite one of my many favorite quotes is a gentleman Italo Svevo. He was James Joyce's Italian translator when he James Joyce spent some time in Italy. He wrote a book called um, and whose name escapes me, but it had my favorite quote from that book is "Life is the disease that admits but one cure." And I think that comes that that is a, a good parallel for some of your realizations in this book. That's good. And my dad had a shrink once who said to him, nobody gets out alive. <laughs> I think that's the doors. <laughs> that's oh, yeah, right. Well. There's that, too. <laughs> <laughs> the, from the confessions of Zeno. Now I remembered it to uh, uh, five to one. I think it is the doors. Uh, tell us about I think. This book does a great job. I mean, in just a little over 200 pages, you give us pretty much a, a personal life that exemplifies much of the turmoil of the last half of the 20th century. <laughs> you think so? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you got, we got all, all the sexuality, uh, you know, the, the explosion of understanding human sexuality, because I think... Up till 1950, we didn't even really understand it ourselves. And, and even now, there's... I wonder if we understand it now. Probably not. No, probably not. There's no understanding it, is there? I mean, it's a mystery. Well, so talk about your uh, first girlfriend who later tr- changed sex sex to male and then became your affair. I think that's... Well, she was not my first oh, girlfriend. She was not your first no, girlfriend. No, my first girlfriend was Deb Schwartz, who's a dear friend of mine who's, mm-hmm. who watches my cats when I go away. She's a wonderful person. Um, the person you're talking about who I had an affair with was was a woman when we were involved the first time and was transitioning, was in transition the second time we were involved. And I don't know that I am the right person to speak to what that's about because I don't understand it. 
Because I, you know, I think even though the whole thing, they've made it LGBT, I think being transgender is pretty different from being not straight, right? Like my gender identity, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I've, I have no idea what it feels like to have your gender identity not conform with the gender you were born with. Mm-hmm. I've always felt like I'm a girl and that's all I am and that's all I'll ever be. Right. I mean, when I was married to a woman, you know, I still felt like I was the girl. I felt like I was the wife. And she felt the same way. It wasn't like I was, you know, it wasn't like we were vying for who got to be the girl. I felt like I was the wife. And we always said spouse. And if anyone said to me, how's your wife? I would say, oh, spouse. Like, I don't have a wife. I, that's not applicable. As I read this, I think you're at what makes this book so wonderful and so liberating for us is you speak so plainly and so clearly. Your prose is so sharp. It gets hooks into us and drags us into your heart and into the heart of this relationship. And we understand all these pricklies back and forth. Um, yet- I think I don't get caught up in identity politics. Like mm-hmm. I think, And I think that's because I'm a journalist. Mm-hmm. I think that the way I tried to write about my life and my relationships was the same way I try to write about other people's lives and relationships when I'm doing profiles for The New Yorker. I try to tell the story of a specific individual. I'm not trying to tell the story of a group. You're, you're, you're avoiding the polemic. It's not my mode. <laughs> you know, right. The only time I've felt comfortable telling the story of movement was when I was writing about Edith Windsor, who was the plaintiff in the uh, Supreme Court case that brought down the Defense of Marriage Act and effectively legalized same-sex marriage in this country. I wanted to write about her specifically as this one individual with a platinum bob on her, you know, for her hair and this particular person who was a pioneer female employee at IBM and, you know, just an amazing individual who I love very much. But in order to tell her story, I had to tell the move, the story of the movement, the story of the gay rights movement and the effort to legalize same-sex marriage. Then I want to talk about a movement and and necessarily you're always going to talk about identity politics if you're talking about a movement for social justice. But when I'm telling individual stories – I don't get caught up in that. I don't think it's pertinent. I don't think it's my job. I think that your job as a writer, and particularly at The New Yorker, this is really an important part of your personality and an important part of this book because it allows you to be sent and or send yourself on encapsulated story pursuits, story yeah. hunts. Yeah. And you send, your, you send yourself to the most dangerous parts of the world. Uh, Not really. It, I have colleagues. I mean, Dexter Filkin sends himself to the most dangerous parts of the world where there's bullets flying. I've never gone anywhere where there were bullets flying. They, they sound dramatic. Like, it sounds dramatic that I go to Mongolia, but it's not actually dramatic. It's not dangerous. I, I never go anywhere dangerous. Well, that depends on how you define danger, too. I mean, getting, <laughs> uh, leaving the, the safe confines in the United States, uh, assuming it's you, not so safe here. I mean, yeah, I know you auto accident or gunshot, gun violence, gun violence. Yeah. You're, you're, uh, nobody's uh, 
taken a started a war on automobile accidents yet. So no, they I, should. I, they should, yeah. And As you know, I love, I really adhere to stop signs. <laughs> I do. I'm a very careful driver, I must tell you. That's really odd. Like a neurotically see- careful. Because I... Why? <laughs> because I think that it's very dangerous. I'm not an irrational person. So, like, if a doctor says to me, it's okay to fly until the third trimester... It's okay for you to get on this plane five months pregnant and go to Mongolia. Then I believe it and I do it. But I also believe it when I read studies that say texting and driving is as dangerous as drinking and driving. So I don't do that. (laughs) You know, in my way, I'm very rational. Well, uh, that makes sense. However, um, let's talk a little bit about the the pieces at the center of this book, which is the uh, Thanksgiving in Mongolia story. Mm-hmm. Um, I have to admit that when I read that, I thought the writing was so amazing because the words you used and the way you wrote the prose allowed me to kind of skim it, take the whole thing in because it, the the scene was so incredibly intense. Emotionally, I couldn't just sit down and really go detail by detail. Mm-hmm. I had to surf it. Mm-hmm. And you made that surfing possible. And yet when I was done surfing, I realized that I might as well have sat down and read the whole thing because I was still completely wrecked. Mm. So talk about Well, I think, again, I think it was repertorial. Mm-hmm. I think it's the eye of the journalist where you say, I'm going to tell you the story of what happened. And I often find that speaking, you know, telling a story with as as little embellishment as possible is actually the most emotionally effective way. Oh, absolutely. It's it's the directness of the language. The directness. That's always my goal is to be as direct as possible. And I think it's also, I mean, that's sort of my truth. I'm a pretty direct person. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying, like I said, you know, I'm trying to write in a voice that's authentic. And that's, for me, that is authenticity is being as direct as possible. To that end, it also... Uh lends itself to the short book, easy-to-read prose. This must come out of work. Uh, your years for working at The New Yorker. Talk about how your editing sessions... I can imagine an editing session at The New Yorker could be pretty darn searing. Oh, no. We have so much fun. Really? My editor, Nick Troutwine, and I... Oh, we have a party. We have such a good time. Oh, you do? Okay, well, that's cool. All we do uh-huh. is try to think of, like, f- the funniest possible ways to insult each other and, like, make fun of sentence. Like, I can't explain. We just have a blast. It's not – Nick and I have a really good time. Like, we really do. I mean, the the part that's serious is the – is before we get in it together. Do you know what I mean? Like when I'm out reporting it and like struggling to write something and like kind of stomping around the house grumpily, like that's not proper English. When I'm in a grumpy stomp trying to like get the thing out of myself, that's serious. But once Nick and I sit down and start going over things and making fun of each other, then it's fun. Then it's good times. Wow. Now we have fun. That's interesting. Especially uh, given how you. uh, Not, I mean, maybe not with Thanksgiving in Mongolia, we weren't like having a laugh ride. No, no, but. Shame. But what I'm, what I was going to say is that at least uh, you go a bit out of your way 
in this book to describe how underprepared you let yourself be to go on some of these reporting assignments. Is that a way of keeping your mind open and keeping yourself fresh? So that was more my practice when I was younger. I, I, <laughs> that was more. I mean, and also that's one. Youthful folly? Well, it was one story in particular. It was the story about Castor Semenya, who is a mm-hmm. South African runner from Limpopo, which is a very rural, remote region um, up north in South Africa. And she had won the world championships in Berlin when she was only 18. And it was this incredible, you know, story of triumph where this girl from a village literally of excuse me, mud huts, I mean, I've been there, had made it onto the world stage after growing up running without sneakers because her parents couldn't afford them. And then at the moment when she's in front of the eyes of the world, her competitors accused her of not being a, a real woman. You know, it was a real... And so I, when I saw this in New York, in the newspapers, thought, oh my God, this is it. This is the story. It's what does it mean to be a woman? Because what they were accusing her of was being... Uh, what what we now call intersex, what but the word they used was hermaphrodite. And so it was a story where you had to figure out what does it mean to be a woman? And it was, man, was it an adventure. I mean, it was just on the other side of the world in a place that I knew nothing about at the time. So the reason I went there so unprepared was that we had to act fast. After I went in and convinced my boss, David Remnick, that we had to do this story, that I had to do this story, it had to I ha- had you had to do the story. Oh you, yeah, because it was you. This is a story made for you. It was. I felt that way. Mm-hmm. I felt that way. I felt this story was my soulmate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I right. did. Yeah, that's what and it feels once like. I convinced him that that was the case, mm-hmm. we had to act really quickly because for various reasons. One, we were competing with lots of other publications, so speed was of the essence. And two. All I knew was that she went to University of Pretoria and that University of Pretoria would be going on school holidays very soon. So I had to get over there. I had to leap before I looked or we would never get the story. It was possible that I would get on the plane and I wouldn't get the story because I was underprepared. But it was definite that I wouldn't get the story if I didn't act quickly. So I did. I think that uh, there's two words you've used quite a bit. One is story. Let's explore that first, because this book itself has one overarching story, but it's made up of many stories. This book is is like a nest of stories. Did you? I love that. <laughs> well, talk talk about uh, going back and orchestrating life so that it it plays it in tune, so to speak. Because this is a very well orchestrated book. It Thank plays you. in tune. It probably didn't sound so tuneful as you were living it. No, I mean, and I think that's the point, right, of mm-hmm. we tell ourselves stories to live, as she says. Like, you know, I mean, we it, that was the to whole— To define ourselves. Absolutely. And that was the whole point was I have to figure out what all this means. I have to figure this out because it was killing me. Well, there was so much in there, too. I mean, you had— you know, your upbringing, your sexuality, your marriage, your affair, the loss of your baby, addiction, and also Al-Anon, which is, I think you have a really interesting experience that Al-Anon seemed rather important to you. Yeah, it was. I mean, it was funny because the the language at Al-Anon was a problem for me because I'm so obsessed with language. <laughs> I loved your, your take on that. That was so much fun to read that. <laughs> they do use, and I'm sorry, Al-Anon people will be yeah. upset with me for saying this, but I'm sorry. It's the truth. They have a weird way with language. They repurpose language in a way that I think is very strange indeed. 
<laughs> repurpose. That's a, a, a kind term. <laughs> it's very strange what they do with language. However, the message that you can't control other people, you can't actually control your own life. You can only control your reaction to situations, you know, or as the psychiatrist and Holocaust survivor Viktor Frankl put it, when we are no longer able to change a situation, we are challenged to change ourselves. I mean, that all was news to me. Like, that all helped me a lot. And and they do say in al take what you want and leave the rest. So I've kind of taken that, and I try to leave the language. I... How long did this take? I mean, how long? Which part? Uh, the the getting all the the good stuff, extracting all the 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 good stuff from all the uh, obtuse language. I mean, was that? I'm kind of surprised you didn't just walk in and go, okay. I did. I mean, I think the first time I went to a meeting, I th- I you know I write about it in the book. Like initially, I was like, this is not okay. I cannot listen <laughs> to people say using instead of drinking in the rooms instead of at meetings a qualification instead of a speech i mean all of it i was just like what are these words but once people started talking about this business of you cannot i mean i was in so much pain because i was arguing with various things like i was i found it unacceptable that my baby was gone. I was like, this is just not acceptable. I cannot tolerate this. I found it unacceptable that my spouse was gone at that moment, that she was, you know, busy with her own disease and couldn't be there for me right after I'd lost my child. I mean, she went to rehab two weeks after I got back from Mongolia. I found that unacceptable. I was just furious about all of it and the idea of that I got from Elon that was like stop making a case stop building your case like stop trying to convince god knows who you know convince yourself convince an imaginary other that you're right because either way whether you accept it or not the this is reality so so you might as well surrender i tell you something that was that was big to me. This is reality. That's a lesson that eventually we all have to learn. And turns out. Turns out. And, and you, it's what's I mean, in, I know. I sound like a dum-dum. No, no, no. But no. I think this that's is a, what happened. This is a brilliant insight that is not made <laughs> too often. Um, so many people, uh, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. I think. And so by the time we're able to make these observations, we think, oh, this has always been true. I've always known this. That's not the case. No, I've never known anything. I haven't. (laughs) I haven't. Uh, Do you still feel that way? Do you still feel there's stuff for you to learn? Of course. What? Well, if I knew, (laughs) then I'd know, wouldn't I? I guess, yeah. You don't know what you don't know. It's It's the unknown unknowns. There's this amazing line in Andrea Dworkin's memoir, um, I think, is it called Heartbreak? I believe it's called Heartbreak, but there's this amazing line. People don't realize that, that she actually was a very beautiful writer. She has this thing where she's talking about how it's not like you can say about your own ignorance that there's a patch that's like this big by this big, someday I'll fill it in. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the ever-loving point. It's your own ignorance. You don't know. Right. 
Wow. Which reminds me of something somebody said at an Al-Anon meeting once that I thought was really beautiful and really true, which is that denial is like sleeping. You don't know you're doing it when you're doing it. Well, that that's a. I think that thought that was a very interesting observation as well, and and I think that um, this book has so much of the stuff of life in it, even though the beating heart at the center of it is the 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 death of your child. Um, it's I do I I do think that this book is about like the molten core of life. It is. You know. And it captures that molten core in its molten state, mm-hmm. changing. Mhm. And and I guess you know, that's where this we like to think life is this or it's that. Mm-hmm. It's not this or that. It's this changing into that constantly. So constantly. Yeah. Um Writing this book, you achronologize it. You know, yeah, kinda... that's how I always do it. I realized, like, with all my articles are like that too. I, there's something about working chronologically that I find distasteful. Like, do you do you, uh, do you write? Um, does that does it flow off your pen that way, or mm-hmm. do you write it out chronologically Mm-mm. and then? No, the it? former. I I I write. I never do anything chronologically because it doesn't ever feel quite like the truth to me. Mm-hmm. Like when you look back and you think about your life and th- I mean, everything in my brain is always organized thematically, not chronologically. And I actually have a very bad memory for dates and time and that kind of thing. Like mm-hmm. it all to me, it's everything happens in themes, not in not over not in time. What themes? What themes are primary in your mind, then and now? Well, it's not. I I I couldn't necessarily name them. I mean, it's just like, you know, the story of my marriage, like the that love, the arc of that love affair. Mm-hmm. I don't know. To me, it's not about chronology. It's about feeling and different parts at different. T- you know, and, and it's that the 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 story of my relationship with motherhood and when I wanted it and when I didn't and how I pursued it. You know, it. I don't remember it in terms of time. I remember it in terms of the levels of yearning and the levels of ambivalence and all that kind of thing. Wow, that's so interesting. Uh, that's uh, there's a, a a wonderful character in here, Doctor John. I I really he like, is a wonderful character. I really like this guy. Yeah, so, I really like him too. So talk about uh, meeting him uh, in in Mongolia and 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 how that relationship developed afterwards. So so after you know. When I was in my hotel room and I gave birth, there was a there was I don't know how long because as I've said I'm bad at time, mm-hmm. but also I was in shock. And two, as I was, I was just talking to somebody about this, I guess that what happens is when you're in those kind of moments, your memory is laying down more data. I think that's right per second. Well, so also, that's why time would seem slow. Also, think about what's going on. I mean, I just pushed a human being out of my body. I mean, that takes a lot out of you physically, hormonally. I mean, 
the, what's going sure. it, it's an altered reality right yeah, it's like an altered state and also it defies logic like it it's hard for the brain to process oh this is really happening i just gave birth in my hotel room on the floor exactly yeah that it's here's my son he's alive here's my child this is my offspring. I mean, it was very hard to process all that. So for I'm not sure what length of time I was just staring at him. And also, I think at some level I knew, of course, it was too early. He was going to die. And I knew this was it. I knew this was it. I knew this is our time together, my my little friend. This is it. This is all I'm going to have with you. So I want to be here for this because... This is it for us. So I did that. And then I went and I called a doctor. I had the phone number for a doctor on a pad because because I had that morning I had had some blood and I was like, oh, shit, like this is not good. And I had found the number for a doctor. Um, And so I called and I was I remember I was in like like a weird, shocked state of like supposed calm, like a like a bizarre kind of, like I remember being like, this is, hi, I'm sorry to call you so late. I just gave birth. I'm in the Blue Sky Hotel. Um, I was 19 weeks pregnant. And the voice said, the voice on the other end said, well, 19 weeks, he's the baby's not going to live. And I said, well, he's alive now. And I remember the doctor said, all right, I'm going to send an ambulance. And I I remember, because I was in shock, I said, well, if there's no chance, I said it, and I remember saying it in, like, my sort of Jewish speech pattern. I remember saying, well, if if there's no chance he's going to live, I'll take a cab. I mean, I distinctly remember saying that. And I remember... And hear the speech inflection. And I remember the doctor saying to me, no, (laughs) that's not a good idea. So anyway, they sent the ambulance, and by the time the ambulance came, my son had died, And then I went to the hospital, and this person walked in the room and said he was my doctor. And I was like, really? Because he was so handsome. I was like, why are you so handsome? It was so bizarre. Like, it was like, and you know what I mean? Like, I'm in this Mongolia. Everything was just so crazy. I'm in Mongolia. Not only has the baby died, but he was also born. I've become a mother, and then... And then lost that status. Like, no, I, I'm a mother and then I'm not. And then there's, like, the handsomest man in the world. I was like, what the hell is going on here? Anyway, we interacted a little bit and we talked about South Africa because that's where he lived when he wasn't in Mongolia. He did rotation in five weeks in Mongolia working in this clinic and then five weeks back in South Africa. So we talked about South Africa for a minute because of the Castor Semenya story that you and I were talking about a little bit earlier. And... Actually, he had read it. I mean, it was just a weird minute. And then I remember thinking, like, okay, you know what? Enough. I'll deal with you later. Like, I can't think. I have to go back to freaking out about what's going on right now. And, you know, and then I got back from Mongolia, and I was so sad I could barely breathe. And at some point, he, the doctor, John, sent me my uh, medical report because I needed it to submit to my insurance company. And believe it or not, I actually was having a very difficult time getting in touch with my doctor in New York. Like, he didn't return my call. I was so angry. 
And it was not when I called the doctor's office in New York, I remember the um, receptionist, I told her what had happened and she burst into tears. And I liked that. I liked it whenever it happened a lot that women would hear what had happened to me or just take one look at me and they'd and they'd already heard what had happened to me and they would burst into tears. And I loved that. It made me feel better. It made me feel like, OK, you get it. Like you get the gravity of what's going on for me. Thank you for crying. <laughs> But the doctor didn't call me back, and I was pissed off about that. But anyway, so when John emailed me my medical report, I said, is it normal that I'm lactating? You know, like, is this okay? And he said, the milk letdown after miscarriage is one of nature's less kind tricks, which I thought was a beautiful way to put it and felt very apt. And then we started writing. And for a long time, that was like the only solace in my life was getting these emails from him because he was there. He saw what happened. So I didn't feel crazy. You know, I was like, this is the only person who has seen what feels so true to me. It's making me nuts that it's invisible, which is here is a mother with her baby who has died. And he was a beautiful writer. And he was telling me all these stories about the other side of the world and growing up in Zimbabwe and fighting in the Bush War and losing his mom and losing his brother and losing his country, you know, all this stuff. And it was transporting and it made me feel better. And we became close. And then we fell in love. Wow. Yeah. That much of that is actually not in the book. Right. And I'll tell you why, if, sure. if I may. Yeah. Because I think while technically accurate to say, and then we fell in love, it would have been extremely misleading to put it at the end of the book, because it implies, and then there's the happy ending, you know, then I'm in love. And the fact of the matter is, falling in love again didn't take away my grief at losing my son. It didn't take away my grief at my last marriage dissolving. It didn't solve anything. I had to get, you know, I lived in grief. I had to live in this tunnel of grief. And then eventually, I it became something that lived in me, and I could get on with my life. And then falling in love with this person and spending all spending all this time like I do now in South Africa and like learning how to ride horses and, you know, drive a Land Rover on the wrong side of the road and all this stuff that he's taught me. It's great. It's it's this it's the next story. But it was not the end of this story. I had to end this story myself. I had to get through it myself. I think that obviously, once again, story addict on the other microphone here. Here, but... On both microphones, my friend. Let's be. Come on now. Uh, I won't deny it. I think that uh, the um, way that you structure this book and this story is um, by putting this piece in the center, and then it's it's like a mountain. It's like we uh, climb a mountain. Then we're on top of the volcano. Then the volcano explodes and fries us. And then we slide down the the other side. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's how I feel, too. (laughs) That's clear. And I think that your ability to recreate yourself um, for us and in this dialogue that you begin with, at the very beginning of the book, you're in a dialogue with yourself. Which self am I talking to now? I, To be perfectly honest with you, I think this experience, this series of experiences, unified myself. <laughs> really? Yes. Uh, do you do you miss having two selves? No, no. I like being 
um, what's the word? Whole. Yeah. And, and also you said a minute ago, like come out of the volcano fried. Mm -hmm. I, I feel fried and I like being fried. Like (laughs) I do. I, I like feeling like I, I just feel better now. I feel better about myself. I feel like I'm a better person. Do you still feel experience times when you're plunged into an abyss of horrifying grief? Yeah, sure. But I don't live in a tunnel of grief. Like grief lives in me. And then from time to time, like I go there, you know, but Mm -hmm. I, I also feel that like, do you feel grief is a friend to you in a sense? I just feel it's appropriate. I feel like there's a little hole in my heart for that baby and that'll be there till the day I die. And it ought to be like, I'm that person's mother. He ought to have a space in my heart that never goes away. And my, and I'll tell you who else. I mean, my former spouse, like, I'll always have a hole in my heart for her, too. I mean, I love her. I always did. And I'm, I'm you know, I'm, it's I miss her. I'm sorry for that. I'm sorry we caused each other so much pain. And, and that I don't think that goes away either. It's okay. Like, I don't aspire to have no pain. Like, it's okay to have pain, you know, and it's just it's it just be there for it. It gives meaning to joy. It certainly does. And also, to adventure, another word you use more than any, many, an adventurous writer I've talked to who goes out and forges through the mountains and stuff. You're an adventurer, a seeker. Well, that's... Do you still feel that's true of yourself? Yeah, I do. And I think that's part of why John and I fell in love, is he's an adventurer, too. I mean, there's a reason the guy... There's a reason we were both in Mongolia. I guess that's true. You know, and we're very compatible that way. Like our idea of a good time is like, okay, what what kind of adventure are we going to have? You know, well, that sounds great. But I'm wondering how the people around you react to that in that it was an after your adventure in Mongolia. A lot of people said, well, why did you do that? You shouldn't be on. You knew you shouldn't be on a plane. And there's this kind of like, I guess, a comeuppance. Yeah, I mean, I felt that. And I certainly, you know, felt a lot of self-recrimination. And and I've spoken to so many women now since that article came out about miscarriage and stillbirth and all the ways in which things go wrong for women um, with pregnancy. You women, I've never, I've yet to meet a single woman who didn't feel responsible, guilty, terrible when she lost her baby. But I believe in science. I mean, I do. I believe in, I'm not a climate change denier. I believe we're doing this. And I believe it when five, ten different doctors have told me now, like, oh, you were going to lose that baby in New York. A placental abruption, it doesn't matter where you are. Once your placenta starts to detach from the wall of the uterus, your pregnancy is not going to be viable. I mean, if it happens at the very, very end, you have a chance. But I was that pregnancy was doomed. So it doesn't matter that I was in Mongolia. I'm lucky it didn't happen on the plane. That I that would have been really bad. I I imagine so. What kind of adventures are you going to look for now in your life? Well. And so, how are they going to be tied to your love with the, the the love you share with John and the love you share with telling stories through the New Yorker still? I mean, that is my job. 
is to go on adventures. That's why I love my job so much. Like, I don't have to um, make those two things come together. They're they're one thing. Like, I'm meant to find adventures. And it's easy enough to do it with John because that's what he likes to do, too. I've been speaking with Ariel Levy. Her new book is The Rules Do Not Apply. Thank you for joining me, Ariel. Thanks so much for having me. You're a great interviewer. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom slash agony.